0: Welcome to Waves of Change Podcast. I'm your host, Lizzie Lara. Hey friends, welcome to another episode of Waves of Change Podcast. I'm so happy that you're here with us. Today I'm interviewing Benito Delgado Olson from SupplyBank.org about his organization that's taken the model of food banks and applied it to other items of high need for low-income families um, really, what they do is work with manufacturers to buy in bulk, and in order to drive down prices and um, provide items of need to families that need them. Um, and they do that um, because a lot of organizations will provide, you know, gift cards or money to low-income families so that they can buy what they need. But the reasoning behind The model that they are using is that by working with the manufacturers to drive down prices and buy in such high quantities, they're really able to um, buy more and um, impact more families. So it's a really interesting model. I hope that you enjoy the interview um, with Benito. I just want to talk through my takeaways of the interview. I love how intentional Supply Bank is about their model. Um, they are very intentional in their programming. Um, you know, if if they realize that one item is no longer of need, they'll pull back on programming. And if they realize that one item is in high need in um, communities, they'll focus on that. You'll hear them talk a lot about how they really stepped up during the pandemic, and um, because of this great model that they have, we're able to provide immediate assistance when it was needed, which I just love. Um, I also love that they are providing these items to community partners to distribute them, um, instead of being just another place that low-income families need to stop by. They are, again, intentional in that, um, they provide these items to places that these low-income families are already going to, like WIC and First Five, um, and working with these community partners to identify the needs and provide them. And I just love that. So I hope that you enjoy my interview with Benito and um, enjoy hearing about the amazing work that supplybank.org is doing. Wonderful, well thank you Benito for being with us today. Um, I'd like to kick off and just have you introduce yourself and your organization and its mission.
1: Yeah, sure. My name is Benito Delgado Olson. I'm the executive director and founder of supplybank.org. And supplybank.org, <clears throat> excuse me, supplybank.org exists to ensure that all people have the supplies they need to thrive.
0: Awesome. Um, and we'd love to just hear about how you first came up with the idea for Supply Bank.
1: I would say its earliest roots were during my senior thesis during my time at Cal, uh, I did okay. a project on the history of the Oakland Unified School District, and part sure. of that was going to all kinds of uh, resource fairs and back to school programs, etc. And I noticed they all had these uh, backpack distributions as sort of like a hook for the community to show up. Um, And then I kind of sadly noticed, by no means a majority or even a critical mass, but that a lot of people who were showing up were showing up to all of them and kind of just like hoarding the distributions of the supplies. And yeah, and so just from like a, thinking about it big picture across the school district and all school districts, from a systems and efficiency standpoint, it, it really didn't make a whole lot of sense. And so the idea came about when I was having a cup of coffee with someone who was part of the McClyman's Alumni Association and is now a long retired uh cop from the Oakland Police Department who did a lot of community work on the side. And I said, you know, I have this really good idea for a nonprofit, but, you know, I'm in the middle of, uh, you know, school and I've got to do this senior thesis, etc. that I have started exploring them on. And then he just sort of looked at me like I was an idiot and said, well, why don't you just make the nonprofit about the thesis? So it's the same thing and move on. <laughs> and I was just, I was like, oh, that's a really good idea. And so uh, I think it was the next weekend I was on the couch uh, in the living room and a good friend of mine who's still on the board, Sean Carr, and I just started talking about it. I said, hey, I have this idea for a nonprofit. uh I think it might make sense to just start it as a student group and see where it goes and you know long story short he of course is an amazing guy he was interested in some of our other friends from uh the time joined the student group as well um most notably a, a person named steve francis who actually was uh one of the founding employees here also for a number of years and um yeah that's really just how it started it you know, evolved quite a bit. The first thing we did were actually scholarships for SAT and ACT preps, back when those were still a, a thing for you. Oh, years. interesting. Um, but the school supply piece was always part of the founding idea also, but of course, you know, over the time of the years, it's become a much more professional organization. Uh, right. Our team is really the engine that makes us go, uh, and we're a much more holistic model than I think we've ever been in terms of how we're trying to just make sure that the systems within the safety net have uh, part of their programming include the material needs that the people they're serving uh, every day need so that it's quick, efficient, uh, respectful, not a line to wait in for something you and I would buy at a grocery store. I
0: love that. Uh,
1: and so it certainly evolved a lot between now and then, uh, but that's, that was sort of the moment in time it began.
0: I love that. Um, I know one of the main concepts of your organization is taking how food banks work and applying that to you know other supplies. I was hoping you could kind of speak more to that.
2: Yeah, sure. So
1: supplybank.org wants to ensure that all the trusted community-based organizations, whether it is your local school, a women, infants, and children, or WIC center, a family resource center, um, and, and even some of the more, you know, full service centers that support people in times of crisis, like a domestic violence shelter or something else, have all of the basic material needs that the people they serve need on an ongoing basis through, say, a diaper and wife distribution program at a WIC site, or during the time of uh once-in-a-century crisis, like the pandemic. Uh, we right. improved tremendously as soon as the pandemic started, and we were asked to take on much more serious tasks than we ever had uh, before. And the same basic principle and model worked of who are the trusted actors that already exist in this community and are basically institutions within this community that people know and trust, what did the people around them need? What do they not have access to? How do we incorporate that into their crisis response programming? And so for us during the pandemic, that was a lot of uh, keeping childcare providers open, both you know centers and home-based providers because there was a complete lack of access to PPE and also a lot of price gouging. Right. Uh, that included uh, just Broader children and families, especially young children and families and other vulnerable populations, and making sure they had all the basics they needed for health, safety, and comfort. You know, I'll say I've never been more proud of our team than I was over these last two years, just because what they did and what they accomplished was really the difference for a lot of places staying open. And I, I struggle sometimes to communicate that to them because I always have the privilege of being the person who hears that and hears like all the praise and the thank yous and stuff. But you know, at the end of the day, it's it's everybody in the organization that makes it go. Uh, you can use whatever analogy you want. It's an engine, you know, it's a plane, whatever. But it, it it really is quite remarkable because there was, and particularly during some of the surges in the very beginning times where you know price gouging was the problem or scarcity was the problem and because we had a system and model in place and volume and the expertise of our collective team we were able to pull off for pennies on the dollar in a much shorter turnaround time because we can be nimble and quick than you know some other agencies that are you know have way more resources, but because of their size, have these very long processes to follow to do anything. Totally. And, so it, and that's not to discredit them because they all have good people that do good work and that's not the goal here. But it's just to say that there is a need for a not-for-profit actor that has expertise in competitive procurement directly from manufacturers or high volume brokers and the relationships and sort of customer service equivalent with all of these hundreds community-based organizations across communities in California, so that when there are times of crisis, there can be a very quick response that everyone is already familiar with and knows what to do. But then also just for people who are trying to get out of a bad situation or poverty, there's, right. there's reoccurring programs and one can always leverage the other. And so that's something that I think we've really just figured out in a way that we hadn't before and it's really exciting Uh, but it also just I think adds a little bit of seriousness and urgency to the work because all of a sudden we see and have a well-defined hole in the safety net that completely debilitates people I, I, I mean like if you can't you can't provide diapers and wipes for your baby I mean how how does that feel? You know, and like right. after, you know, you're going to be so stressed out and not able to think about anything else. And the same is true for any of these other basic material needs that people who are largely working uh, have to go without. And so it it's um, you know it's it's fun and a privilege to do all this work, but at the same time, um, sometimes you'll hear something, or you know, we had a a media event in Fresno last week, and I got to talk to the head of their uh, the African American coalition program at the Fresno EOC. And, you know, she was emotional in her thanks and praise, just saying, you have no idea how much this matters to the people we serve. And when you're stuck behind, you know, a desk with, you know, multiple monitors and spreadsheets and all kinds of stuff, you, you forget totally. that stuff yeah, because you're stuck in the minutiae. And so
2: mm-hmm.
1: it it's, um, yeah, it's just very grounding and it's also rewarding to have those types of interactions and to understand it, to get a reminder of why the work everyone's doing matters so much.
0: Yeah, it sounds like the pandemic almost like put your, your programming to the test and you guys lived up to it. You really showed up for the community, which is awesome. I mean, keeping childcare centers open, that snowballs because then people are able to go to work and, you know, yeah. You know, be at their jobs, and that keeps various places open that need to be open for the community. So yeah. love that.
1: And I have to give a shout out because I don't want this to to sound like Supply Bank did all this on our own. Our partnership organizations, especially when it comes to child care, all the county children and family commissions, known as First Five, and the state First Five Commission, um, and a lot of the child care councils in those counties, they're the one We're a a key step in the process, but The other keys are of course the funders with resources and then the trusted community-based organizations on the ground. And because California is so fortunate to have a first five commission in every single county that includes the social services agency director, the public health officer, pediatrician, childcare professionals, et cetera, they have a really good idea of what early childhood development looks like in all the communities within their county. And so we can leverage all of that, and we can leverage their people to make sure that these distributions happen quick when it's an emergency. Um, and so just to you know, to underscore, it's a very collective effort, and it you know it's fun to be this piece of it, but it wouldn't work without them.
0: Yeah, well, and I love too that you're giving the supplies to these um, you know agencies that are already working in the community or not already known by the community. Um, I think that's important is, you know, you're not like creating another place where people have to go to pick up these supplies that they need.
2: Exactly.
1: I think one stop is the the key. I mean, just, you know, if you remove supply bank for a minute, just as a whole, I think, you know, most people who have never been poor, I don't think understand just how much of a strain it is to apply for all of these programs and to monitor them and to fulfill them. I mean, just off the cuff thinking, there's a care program for a subsidized utility bill. There's an ESA, LIHEAP, and LIWIT program for weatherization of your home. There's uh, CalWORKS for cash aid, CalFresh for food, Medi-Cal for health care, different transit agencies, if you're lucky, have them. Now there's a good thing, LIWAP for water. I mean, I could go on and on. Right. Uh, Just that's nine programs.
0: (laughs) That, yeah, all have their different applications and, yeah.
1: Yeah, so it's it's overwhelming, quite honestly. I mean, but I will say something that's hopeful about it is that um, I know that uh, social services on the state side is putting together an app that'll allow you to apply for any of their programs onto one platform.
2: Oh, that's awesome. And the
1: Public Utilities Commission is doing the same thing for all of the utility bill discount weatherization type things uh, and I think even uh, subsidized cell phone service, Lifeline, on a separate app. And so in a few years, I think those will both be online with the bugs worked out. And if they just have a link to the other one, that will cover a substantial piece of the safety net so that if you're just, you know, um, trying to make it work for your family, you can do it, one, on your smartphone, and two, you can also um, Sign up for multiple things at once without having to go to multiple offices or websites, trying to figure out what you qualify for.
0: Right, that's awesome. I love that they're doing that. Yeah. Um, I know that everything that you give is like new. I would love for you to speak to the importance of that.
1: Yeah, definitely. I mean, a principle we have is that whatever we provide to families and uh, you know, and everyone really is as good as what we would expect for ourselves if we were to purchase it for ourselves or our families in the store. And so for us, you know, it, it's not that we don't like reuse, we do. I'm a big Craigslist furniture fan because you can get all kinds of deals there and you're one sander and coat of lacquer away from a brand new table. Totally. But, but there are certain things we all consume that are uh, disposable or get worn out after four or five years, like a really good backpack or kids grow. So, you know, that's another piece um where it's just you know nobody nobody feels good when they get something and it's got a bunch of dirt or holes or something in it and it doesn't it doesn't really feel like you're solving much for them and so our, our you know basic principle we have is of course just making sure whatever we provide is as good as what we would want for ourselves that's not to say that as uh, our organization continues to grow and volume increases that you know myself and, and just as importantly, our leadership team don't want to try to find ways to leverage that volume with manufacturers to use recycled, you know, raw materials and to do other things that are innovative and environmentally friendly. But, um, you know, our first priorities, our mission and our vision to make sure people have the supplies they need. And for us, that standard is, is it good enough for what we would want if we were paying for it? It, a big box store or amazon
2: or whatever
0: so yeah i love that it helps to bring dignity too because if you're a child walking into a school with a new backpack it feels a lot different than you know a used backpack and use school supplies so i love mm-hmm. that you do that um and so i saw that you guys have amazing programs and i'd love to just kind of walk through them each so everyone can you know have a high level view of everything you're doing, um, starting with the diaper kit program, which I know you spoke a little bit about, but if you could just tell us what you're doing there.
1: Yeah, definitely. That program we've been running, oh gosh, uh, six or seven years now, and it it's to address diaper need. And diaper need is something that's getting more attention, but I think a lot of people still don't know a lot about it. And so diaper need is basically the inability to have enough diapers to keep your baby clean and dry Uh, diapers are expensive before the pandemic we used to say they cost upwards of $100 a month. Now it's much more than that, given inflation, fuel increases, etc, the prices have gone through the roof, I mean, uh, I was at my grocery store. I think it was early this week, and saw that some of the larger sizes are pushing upwards of 50 cents a diaper. Well, that sounds cheap, 50 cents is, you know, under one cushion of your couch, maybe. But when you add it up, assume 10 changes a day, that's $1,800 a year. If you're a single parent making 20 bucks, that's 6% of your take-home income after taxes, just going to diapers and wipes. That is really expensive. And so the Diaper Kit program is about helping working families with this cost burden By distributing diapers and wipes through places they already go for other programs and services, such as WIC, Family Resource Centers, and a lot of our rural communities, we do it through home visitation programs so that the families don't have to travel at all. Mm. Those workers are already going. It strengthens relationships, not just with those home visitation workers, but really
0: all the providers, because now they're not just providing the great services that are part of their own
1: program, but they've incorporated something into it that cost well north of $100 a month for families. And so it adds you know, a much greater amount of resources to their budget and to their bottom line. So in a nutshell, that's the diaper kit program. One thing I will say is that it's um, got a lot of consequences that I don't think a lot of people understand. Prior to the pandemic, there were 40,000 hospital visits a year, just about in California alone tied to the top three symptoms of diaper need, most notably severe diaper rash and urinary tract infections. Mm-hmm. Additionally, most childcare providers require diapers to be brought
2: mm-hmm. with your
1: child. And so if you can't afford diapers, you don't have child care. And then all of a sudden you have a barrier to your employment.
2: Mm-hmm. So
1: it can contribute to the cycle of poverty in multiple ways, in addition to just being flat out expensive. Uh, And so it's one of the best examples, I think, of how the supply bank model can be much more of an efficient solution because we're buying diapers by the container full. And when you have that volume, or in our case, much more, all of a sudden, the cost of that diaper that's, you know, 46, 47 cents for a size five or six in the store, goes down to substantially less than 20 cents. And even when you add in all the shipping and imports and stuff like that, it becomes a much more efficient operation than, say, gift cards. So right. there's, there's ways to address these issues, but also ways to dramatically increase the bang for the buck when resources are always limited to support working families.
0: Yeah, I love that. And I saw on your website, it says like all babies deserve clean diapers, which I think we can all agree on. Like, yeah, it breaks my heart to think of any baby going without like a diaper change when they need it. Yeah. Um, I love that. Um, And then uh, the other program I saw is K to college is, is it K through college. Is that how you call it?
1: K to college. That K-to-college. is our oldest program. That's nice. all about School supplies and some hygiene supplies, but mostly school supplies and backpacks. Um, that's really the program that got us started. We provide um, grade-appropriate kits that have three categories of, uh, you know, pre-K slash Kinder to one, and then two to five, and then middle and high school. Uh, it, you know, that's it's how we got started. It operates in just about all 58 counties in California. I would okay. say its largest focus is the homeless student population, um, Mm. legally known as the McKinney-Vento population. So kids who don't have a permanent home address is a bit of an oversimplification, but pretty accurate. Um, And the way that works is our programs team works with the different county offices of education and hundreds of school districts across California to provide school supply kits and backpacks to them Uh, twice a year. And we actually recently sponsored uh, some legislation authored by Assemblymember Calderon to extend a program that funds it through 2029, which we're very happy was successful last year. And so on your, we're already past tax season, but if you filed an extension uh, on your 540 state income tax form, there's like one of 18 causes you can donate to. And one is called the School Supplies for Homeless Children Fund those dollars go directly to the program. And we're required to provide a 100% in-kind or cash uh, match for every dollar that's donated. So the program has a lot of leverage uh, because of that. And it's really the only dedicated resource in the state for that purpose.
2: Um,
1: And we've been running it, I want to say, since about 2013 or 2014. And it's, you know, at this point, provided tens of millions of dollars in resources to kids experiencing homelessness up and down the state. But it also goes back to our model that a lot of the kids who receive those materials are receiving them during a time of first contact with a social worker at their school district or a school counselor. Mm -hmm. And one of the things we learned when we were putting this program together is there's a piece of paperwork called a supplemental nighttime residency questionnaire that a guardian has to fill out when a student has been identified as someone who might be experiencing homelessness. And it has this little field where you fill out all the types of basic supplies you don't have and need. And so for a lot of those workers, when they're doing that, they say, well, you can try Goodwill here or this shelter here, et cetera that's not, I mean, that's helpful, but it's not great. It's a lot better if the worker can just say, okay, well, what grade are you in? Says you're in third, here you go. And then all of a sudden, that social worker who can probably provide a lot of other services that are really helpful has given the child and the parent something that probably would have cost them $100 in the store. And so that's, that's a key piece of what we're trying to do to strengthen systems while we're also leveraging them for our own program.
0: I love that. Um, and it could be like, you know, but that, that child hasn't received anything new like that in quite some time. So um, I can only imagine how that feels for them. We've heard um, that before. Yeah. yeah. The other program I saw is the Green Access Pledge.
1: That program has been on hold for a while. Uh, okay. To be totally honest, there's a new website that's just launching, I think, today that'll be a little more updated, but I can't talk about it because it's an important issue, which is just that, um, you know, we looked at access to laptops, um, and particularly for community college students who were on cache, known as CalWORKs, and we ran a number of pilot programs for it, but a wonderful thing happened during the pandemic, which is that out of necessity, there were a lot of state and local investments into connectivity for students and so it really um, as a matter of fact a a foundation board that i was on at the time the uh, cde foundation which is um, affiliated with the state department of education uh, really helped facilitate a lot of that on the back end as well as a lot of other internet providers and, and charities but um Needless to say, most school districts and commun- a lot of community colleges for kids who are coming adults, really, who are on CalWORKs and so on, um, now provide a computer and some form of deeply discounted or free connectivity, depending on which district you're in. And so I don't want to say that problem has been solved because that's definitely not true. But right. in the last two years, they made so much progress on it. And we were so focused on emergency response for COVID with PPE and diapers and wipes and infrared thermometers and things like that. Mm. that we sort of just shifted focus to where we would be most effective, recognizing yeah. that there were really large institutions making massive investments on that uh, in that space. So.
0: Yeah, that totally makes sense. Um, do you imagine like going back to that, I imagine there's still like a need of, um, you know, laptops, especially that things are, seem to be more in this digital Zoom space?
1: Yeah, I think anything is possible with us in our programs. So for example, there's a, I don't want to say too much about it until it actually gets going, but there's a program that builds off of some of the emergency response disaster preparedness work we've been doing in the form of like uh, kits for vulnerable uh, individuals in our state. Mm-hmm. And there's also you know, um, well, I can actually show you a really good example, I think. Uh, so, you know, prior to the pandemic, if you were to ask me, are we going to start manufacturing uh, custom design infrared thermometers for the State Children and Families Commission? I would have said, no way. I wouldn't do that. <laughs> right. Uh, but, you know, when the pandemic hit, um, that's
0: pretty awesome.
1: These went up to like what, 60 $65. Our costs on these were nine bucks. So oh my goodness. there's, there's a balance that our programs department is charged with figuring out that balances, uh, need and cost burden and the ability to address both. So for example, that. right now, fresh on everyone's mind, I think is the formula crisis. Yes. Prior to the pandemic, we did very little, if anything, with that when the pandemic first started, there was a shortage really just because of hoarding. The manufacturers and the supply right. chain were fine. Uh, and so that prompted us to start working with Abbott, which makes Similac. And Abbott, mm-hmm. of course, the company that has the factory shut down in Michigan right now that's, hopefully it sounds like reopening soon.
2: Right. Um, and so we
1: started working with them and just accepted the lead time and started doing formula distributions in Santa Clara County and a few other counties around the state. And in this latest crisis, we, you know, obviously couldn't work with Abbott, so we started talking to Nestle, which makes Gerber, and um, we got a little bit of product from them. I understand from my colleagues, but you know, I I think they're very limited in what they can do, as all of the FDA-approved plants in the U.S. and elsewhere are, right. Um, And so right now there's this sort of crisis situation where we could definitely get funding to buy more formula if we had access to the product and it's sort of like a one time thing that we would do. Uh, But it's not necessarily a strategic long term program just because the wholesale price on formula, even if you work out a charitable arrangement and get a little below it. Is very close to what you pay in store. I'm pretty sure it's either a loss leader for places like Target and Amazon, or they just have such a massive volume that they're able to achieve a slightly better price so that they, you
2: know,
1: they break even. But it isn't really a product that um, is similar to diapers or these infrared thermometers. Or I mean, even without price guides, I think those sell for maybe twenty-five or thirty bucks and. Again, they cost maybe $9 to manufacture. So, um, and probably less if you add more volume. So, it's, there's always just sort of a balance of, okay, what is the long-term need and what is the predictable crisis disaster response need? And how can the supply bank model be the most cost-effective solution for that out of all of these needs that are laid out through you know various
2: needs assessments and things like that that our team does?
0: yeah no yeah that makes sense i'm curious too i mean um another hot topic is the supply chain and issues around that has that affect your um normal day-to-day operations at all or
1: definitely yeah our i was talking to um uh jessica our director of operations and uh justin our director of programs the other day about where are we getting how are we getting our diapers because during the pandemic, we were just trucking them because um, maritime was so unpredictable, and it still is. The Port of Oakland is still kind of a mess. Uh, right. And so that is way more expensive and the fuel and diesel crises are not helping. Right. Um, and so it it does. It makes everything more expensive, and it's really compounded um, the inflation and fuel you know, pressures that everyone is experiencing on basically everything you have to do to live these days, except breathe. So it's um, it's definitely impacted us. It's still I would say in terms of the margin of savings and efficiencies, it's not just because the prices seem to be going up in the store by a greater percentage then the prices we're paying that are going up if that makes sense so yeah you imagine like our diaper prices going up three or four percent in the store they've gone up like 25 so somewhere in there there's a middle person or something that right taking advantage of it and so uh or maybe i don't know maybe they have other considerations type of marketing or something else but um so as a whole, I think it doesn't really threaten our model too much other than that the agreements we have in place have to have some flexibility when prices go up. Right. Um, but for the model, if anything, I think it, it makes it more uh, attractive as an option for what we're trying to do because the savings just become that much deeper.
0: Totally. And I imagine like then, you know, I mean, hopefully inflation levels off, but with inflation, the need is getting greater of people who can't afford these like, basic supplies in the stores.
1: Yeah, it's sad. I, I mean, truthfully, it's really sad. And especially in the Bay Area where it's just right. And I mean, I grew up here. I've been here pretty much my whole life. And uh it it's it's just it's changing everything very quickly. And I don't it, it's funny. I I was walking in my old neighborhood uh the other day with my partner and ran into someone I went to elementary school with whose parents still live in the neighborhood. And that I, you know, those types of people, you see them like once every three years. So you're still right. like, you were just at recess or something. And, <laughs> and basically, um, you know, when he was laughing, it was just like, yeah, I'm always excited when I meet anybody who grew up in Oakland, nobody's left. And it's just kind of, right. it's just sort of like, ah, you know, it's true. It's also just kind of sad because like, I do have a lot of friends that wanted to stay, but we're just sort of like. Totally. I can't afford to buy a house here and then pay for private school after elementary school because there's issues with the middle and high schools. Mm-hmm. And like they just started adding it all up and they're like, this won't work for a life decision. And then they move to like Walnut Creek or Texas or wherever.
0: Idaho. I've been hearing a lot of Idaho. Yeah. I mean, yeah. And I, I hear that a lot too with people who have good income. So I can only imagine the stress of people who are, you know, um, essential workers working um you know with a, like a basic income like paying a bay area rent or or mortgage really hard. I, yeah. I, I,
1: that's why there's a lot of super commuters and honestly uh, I really hope the high-speed rail thing works out uh, I mean I get there was some sort of political reason for why they decided the first stretch should be from Bakersfield to Merced or wherever it is in the Central Valley but I think the day that somebody can get on a train that's comfortable and reliable and go from downtown San Jose to Tracy in like 15 minutes will be a complete game changer. Because if you make 20, 25, 30 bucks an hour and you live in the Central Valley, you can afford a home. and You can afford to live a lot easier than if you live in any of the nine Bay Area counties. And those folks are unfortunately like commuting over the hill, and that is not a fun thing to do. I and it it's also just gotta really just wear you down after a while. And yeah,
0: the lifestyle of just commuting is yeah, tough. Exactly. Yeah. So mm um just circling back to your programming, so I know you also um provide supplies to nonprofits if you want to speak to that.
1: So to dive deeper into the model, we really work with uh, organizations that are already very trusted within the community and so to build off of what i said earlier we almost never with just a couple of very rare exceptions provide materials directly to the people who need them and so we always with a new program or an existing program that we're revamping look at what makes the most sense out of the safety net. And so for school supplies for students, that's schools, for diapers and wipes, it's family resource centers, WIC, home visitation. Uh, but similarly for, you know, disaster response, which is something we're starting to explore more and more. Uh, we've worked with community action agencies, which are um, a type of agency that exists in pretty much every community across the United States It was part of the whole great society uh legislation that uh former president Johnson got through
2: Hmm, interesting uh,
1: that basically it's a hub of innovation within the safety net and in a lot of small and medium-sized counties it is contracted to do everything that's not confidential work by the local social services agency at the county level in California But then in other states like Washington, which has a centralized form of government for social services and not county-based like we do in California, they just contract directly with the state. But as we look to explore and endeavor of when we do hit a place of critical mass where we feel comfortable in what we're doing in California and want to look elsewhere, community action agencies have always been something that we felt were a very consistent piece of the safety net that's federally funded, tied to the Social Security Act, that could work everywhere as it relates to the provision of essential basic needs. And we worked with them also during the pandemic quite a bit to provide materials. A lot of them already aligned completely with their local first five and all their school districts, especially in the smaller counties, because they're such small communities, it's, you know, your neighbor. Right. Um, and you know and we love that. And the majority of I would say the land territory in the United States seems to be covered by the community action agency network as their safety mm. net. In urban areas it becomes a little bit more complicated because there's so many more people and more resources and so you know for example in Alameda County there's the City of Oakland Alameda County Community Action Agency. They have some programs but You know, they're really quite limited, and it seems like they just uh, supplement other things that the city and county are investing into in larger dollars anyway, all good services. But you compare that to uh, CAPMC, the Community Action Agency Partnership of Madera County, where you've got like this massive hub, and it's like if you run that agency, you are like, the leader of the county for human and social services because it's got Head Start and other child care. It's got job training. It's got CalFresh. It's got outreach for Medi Cal and CalWorks. It's the place to go for all of that type of stuff. And the only urban area I've seen that has that is Fresno. But Fresno, of course, has its roots in the middle of the Central Valley and is similar in, in its history. So it, It's interesting, but I would say that there are definitely a lot of lessons and best practices we've learned about distributing through other public agencies and nonprofits in California that will work pretty much anywhere across the country. We have a really long way to go before we look seriously outside of California because it's so big. Right. But, um, you know, I'm pretty confident in the next two to three years, we're going to be able to stabilize. A lot of the different types of programs and uh, safety net systems that we're infiltrating and building programs within existing programs that provide supplies, and to kind of just show that model and take it to uh, the next um, place that we want to grow.
0: That would be awesome. Um, and my next question actually kind of leads into that about what you're excited about um, when thinking about the future of Supply Link.
1: Um, I would say I'm excited for a number of things. I think, um, you know, one is I really enjoy the team I work with. Um, and that doesn't mean we always get along. We have such wonderful <laughs> arguments sometimes, but I really appreciate them. And I appreciate having colleagues who openly and directly disagree, because mm-hmm. I think that's how you get to the place of having a consensus that everybody is comfortable with, or at least a decision that everyone understands. And so I'm I'm excited to continue growing this team because I think we're gonna need a lot of leaders to make this continue to go. And so that's one piece that really gets me excited. The other is just infrastructure. Um, We're the developer on a 16 acre piece of land on the Oakland waterfront off of Oakport in 66 that will have our new distribution center. It's the first time we will wholly own one Uh, Wow. So it's about 120,000 square feet, but we're gifting half of it to the local water district in exchange for the land. Hmm.
2: And then
1: on the same property, we're building a five-story, 160,000 square foot nonprofit uh, center. Uh, And so we're working with uh, a number of leaders in the nonprofit space arena. I don't want to name them because I didn't ask, uh, but (laughs) If, if you're familiar with that, you'll probably know who they are in the Bay anyway, but um, just around, well, what is office space going to look like for nonprofits in the future? And so we're starting to have some of those conversations, but without going on a tangent, what I'll say is that everything that's fun and innovative and uh, forward thinking for improving the community we live in, as well as preserving all the really uh, kick-ass agencies, basically, that are in the bay area with a place they can stay with a very predictable low rent for the next 60 years is what this place will be so you can go to oakport.org and see some of the uh, renderings uh we're going to update it probably in the next month or two with a lot more information um but you know several tens of thousands of square feet of large murals that face directly to the 880 freeway A rooftop garden and deck, uh, a shuttle that goes to the Coliseum station and maybe the Fruitvale station during rush hour because of how the traffic logistics work. Right. Um, And on top of the warehouse, in addition to the walls all being covered with gorgeous murals, will be a one and a quarter acre rooftop farm, which will be the biggest one outside of New York, as I'm told. Wow. The other half will be a solar array. Uh, And so there's all kinds of stuff we haven't wrapped our heads around yet through this project um, you know on-site child care that will be subsidized for lower wage earners wow. uh, job training programs the city of oakland has a public art impact fee which will probably cost us about a million dollars so in addition to what we pay for the uh, murals the idea is to put the rest of that towards the bay trail and improving that with you know whatever works for the Bay Trail folks and these Bay Regional Park folks. We haven't spent too much time on it aside from aligning the dollars to go there, but I'm excited for that. Uh, I would say the most thing I'm excited for though is having uh, the team and an expanded team and all of the capacity for opportunity that those facilities will bring together uh, with the team and with all that space because we work with some wonderful warehousing partners who, you know, really, especially during the pandemic, came through for us big time. Uh, but I know there's going to be so much more we can do when we totally. have our space, and also just because of where that space is located. Even though building by the water is not a quick process, <laughs> um, it it will be well worth it, just because supply. There's like I forgot how many hundreds of thousands of cars go through that thing a month, but. Um, it's it's a ton. And so Supply Bank will gain a lot of, um, of just recognition as a brand, which hopefully translates to more programs and services and just, you know, accomplishment. It's hard to build stuff. And once that's done, I think people will trust us to do more things that aren't as expensive but right. <laughs> us matter a lot more because they're tied to the programs which is the whole point we sort of became like this accidental developer so um and that's fun but long term it's not
2: what we want to do so right
0: so but it just can- sounds like the ideal place though like everything about it like nonprofits coming together and having this like collaborative space to the rooftop farm and solar panels like everything about it just sounds so amazing that's really exciting
1: and that's what we want. There's nothing there now. It's just a gravel lot. And so we want it to be a place of community. We have all these engagement plans to survey different nonprofit C-suite individuals to figure out what are you looking for in a space if it had this and this and this. What do you think would be missing? What are your office plans for the future? Just because it's, uh, I think it's something people are just starting to think about. Because I mean, for us, we just started coming back and only two days a week, and only for half the day, right? And, yeah. And some people choose to come in a lot more than that. Others choose to, you know, just they just want to come here for the collaboration and the meeting time, and then go home. And you know, we're pretty good with either. But I've heard that from other nonprofits, and then I've heard models that are completely different. And so, right,
0: yeah. Sorting right. that out
1: and figuring out what does a nonprofit center need to look like to cater to all of that is going to be a process.
0: I think also people that are outside of the nonprofit sector don't realize how hard it is for nonprofits to fund overhead, like, you know, paying for office space. It's not something that's like sexy for donors to fund, right? It's like salaries and office space. So being able to have like an affordable office space, especially in the Bay Area is so essential to nonprofits. So I love that.
1: Completely agree. And I think that's, the best part of it is the predictability of it. We're also at a place where thankfully, I think state, federal, and some philanthropy are really a lot more flush than they normally would be. And so for things like capital grants, there's a lot more acceptance because it's a one-time ask. And so what we're really hoping once we're through the planning commission with the city is that we can take advantage of those because the more capital grants we get, the less we really have to you know, pay for rent. And the goal is to make it as cheap as possible so that folks want to stay there for, you know, multiple generations, basically.
0: Yeah, I love that. Yeah. Um, well, wrapping up, I'd love to open it up to you to um, let listeners know how they can help your organization.
2: Yeah, definitely.
1: I would say there's a number of ways to help. Obviously, every nonprofit always encourages donations. And so, if you go to supplybank.org, that is something that we always appreciate. And there's fields in there so you can kind of customize where and how it goes. Um, You know, if you're not in a position to do that, that's fine too. Uh, It sounds a little tacky, but truthfully, social media followers actually really help. Uh, Mm -hmm. Just following it and sharing what we've done, commenting on it. Uh, We've actually had Strangely enough, um, mostly through LinkedIn, but a couple from Facebook and Twitter, partnerships that have come out of somebody seeing something on social media, which is that's so awesome. great. Um, but so that's always tremendously helpful uh, as well. And then, you know, because it's a program we're really focusing on right now, I would say Google diaper need in parentheses on Google News and just read about it. it it's a big issue. And um, you know, not to be altruistic or anything, but the goal is always to just figure out the long-term solution to the problem. And I think public education on what it is and its impacts is pretty key. There's also a good organization, the National Diaper Bank Network, which we're a member of. They have all kinds of resources. Uh, their founder Joanne is just this wonderful force of nature and created a whole national movement about something that nobody was probably even thinking about 20 years ago.
0: Oh, so. Okay.
1: Um, uh, there's lots you can do by just being an informed citizen and by liking us on LinkedIn, Facebook, and Twitter. <laughs> I love it.
0: Yeah. I love that. Just being an informed citizen is, is helpful in, in itself. Um, well, I always like to end all of these with just some fun rapid fire questions about yourself. Sure. Um, so, um, I'll go through them um so your favorite place in the world and be as specific as possible
2: probably
1: deep in the redwoods on a hike in the far north redwoods like up in humboldt county on the klamath river or something like that
0: yes i love that um the show that you're currently binge watching
1: oh man um I don't honestly have one right now because we've finished a couple of them, so I'm, I'm exploring, so I'm open to suggestions, but um, lately I've been not watching too much fiction. I've just been watching documentaries, so yeah.
0: I feel like there's a lot of good documentaries out there right now, too. Yeah, exactly. Um, last book that you read?
1: The last book that I read, um, I'm messing up the whole title, but it's broken, uh, and it's Poverty in America. It's by Joanne Goldblum, the same person that founded mm. the National Diaper Bank Network. She so co awesome. it with someone else. It—it's uh, funny. I started reading it almost a year ago, uh, and then I forgot what happened. I think that was when the last surge happened, or something, and work became overwhelming. Um, and so I just picked it up and started it from a couple chapters from before where I left it off because it was in like the middle of a section. And finish it, but it's just a wonderful book about the realities of poverty in the United States. Hmm. But what I love about it is it also has proposed solutions to them.
2: And I love that.
1: a lot of books and a lot of authors and, you know, folks who are um, and Joanne isn't this, but like pundits on network news are just always stating problems and no solutions. And I don't feel like that's really helpful. Right. Um, and so... I really appreciated the thought she put into it. She also is a social worker um, by trade before she fell into this. And what she put into that was just some really good ideas. They may not all be the right ones, but I think some of them probably are. And I just appreciate someone who's willing to not only say, this is the problem, but hey, here's the solution. Because that's that takes a lot of careful thought and it also is putting yourself out there to be uh disagreed with that a lot right. of people are kind of afraid to do for some reason so.
0: yeah totally yeah i agree with that there's a lot of people stating problems out there but um we also need solutions too so i do exactly. like yeah. that i'll have to look that one up um one fun fact about you fun
1: fact um fun well I would say I am a very frugal person, sometimes to an extreme. Uh, if it's a party, all I want are extra toasty Cheez-Its and like a Bud Light. And if it's not, maybe a Diet Coke, which I know is terrible for you, but it's delicious with an extra toasty cheese Cracker. Uh, and I just really enjoy that. I, I I had my phase when I was a young teenager where I had to have like the Nike shoes and all that other stuff that I am almost embarrassed about now, uh, but I think that when you have that as like a life uh, lens, you're just a lot happier. And because totally. you just stop caring about a lot of things that just waste time. And it reverberates into other things that sometimes you'll like be in a restaurant and you'll see someone freak out because their avocado toast order was <laughs> messed up or something. And you're just kind of like, well, who cares?
2: <laughs> right,
0: yeah. There's more important things. Yeah, yeah. So I would
1: say frugality is
2: fun. I like it.
0: Yeah. I like that. Um, and then last one, your favorite quote.
2: Um, I would say
1: my favorite work quote, it's above my door. And it says, the most important decision you make is to be in a good mood. And it's by Voltaire. And I really, I put that up right before the pandemic, not knowing what was coming. Uh, I was at my partner's uh, families get together in san diego and there was just a vendor selling all these pieces of driftwood that they restored and painted a quote on and i that's saw nice. that one and one other one that's uh hung at home and i was like that would be just so wonderful to see every time i walk out of my office because like sometimes things happen <laughs> at work and it's just a reminder that it's not that big a deal just smile and get over it and move on and so that's my goal that. yeah.
0: yeah we can always choose joy well, wonderful. Well, thank you so much, Benito. This was uh, such a pleasure. I enjoyed um, this conversation. Yeah, it was
1: great to meet you, Lizzie, and thank you for reaching out and really appreciate the opportunity.
0: Of course. Thank you so much for listening to Waves of Change podcast. I'm your host, Lizzie Lara. I would love if you would follow or subscribe our podcast or would you leave a rating or review five stars is our favorite that would help others find us and we'd really appreciate it. If you're active on social media, please follow us at waves of change podcast on Instagram. Even more, if you would share this episode on your stories, that would be wonderful. If you have suggestions or want to recommend an organization I should interview, email us at wavesofchangepod, P-O-D, at gmail.com. Thank you. I'll see you next time.